God, as we just confessed in song, it is true that we need you for everything. Every breath, every thought is dependent upon you. So I pray that you would come and speak to us of your wisdom from your word. Not human words, but, but your divine wisdom so that we would know the source of life and that our hearts would be turned to you. So that's what we're asking this morning, that you would send your spirit to, to enliven our hearts, uh, to, to bind them to you and to sharpen our minds so that we could know the truth and follow it through your word. So we ask this, asking for the spirit's guidance, and we ask it in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, life is full of choices. We make choices all the time. But the hard thing is we don't always know in the moment which choice is going to turn out best. We don't know the outcome of each path that we're choosing between. So there's a great example from the 2007 National Basketball Association draft. Uh, so that particular year, there were two standout players, Greg Oden and Kevin Durant. They were both uh, the top recruits in high school. They had outstanding uh, freshman years of college. And if you saw, if some of you saw them play college basketball, you saw that these were going to be special players. But it was clear that these two were at the top. They were going to be chosen first and second. But the question was, who do you pick first? If you have the top pick in the draft, who should go first? Do you pick Greg Oden or do you pick Kevin Durant? And so Portland Trailblazers were the team that had the first pick, and, and they had to actually make that decision. Everyone else could debate it, but they're the ones whose team actually depended upon uh, the outcome of this choice. So there was this whole lively debate all summer long, and, and they actually had billboards up in Portland saying, honk once for Odin, honk twice for Durant. They had a, a, a voting thing on their website where you could click, you know, pick Odin, pick Durant, and this kind of thing. And while it was a pretty lively debate, the, the majority of people said that, that Greg Oden was the right choice. So it was something like 75% of the people on the website ended up voting for uh, Greg Oden, saying, you know, pick him. And, and it makes sense. I mean, Greg Oden's seven feet tall. He's something like 280 pounds. He's huge. But not just is he huge, but he's also really athletic. He's got quick feet. He's got like 33-inch vertical leap, something like that. So he's just a massive player. And if you saw him play in college, you could see that he could really take over a game. He's a huge guy, athletic, and, and if you have a chance to get a big athletic guy like that, you don't pass it up. It's a once-in-a-lifetime kind of thing. He's a sure bet. But if you fast-forward seven years later, it's pretty clear that that was a terrible choice. If you watched uh, Durant's career and Oden's career, you see that they actually made the wrong choice there. Uh, Greg Oden, before he even started an NBA game, had to go through microfracture surgery on his knee, and he missed his entire rookie season. He's been plagued by injuries ever since, and they've actually traded him away to a different team now. But, but on the other hand, uh, Kevin Durant has emerged as one of the top basketball players in the whole world. He's led the league in scoring for like four years or something like that. He was this year uh, named most valuable player. So it's clear, looking back, that if Portland had known how those two paths and players' careers would have unfolded, they definitely would have chosen Kevin Durant over Greg Oden. But that's the hard thing. You, you don't know what the right choice is because you don't know the outcome of all those paths that you're deciding between. That's part of what's so hard when it comes to these kinds of decisions. We don't know the outcome. Now, wouldn't it be nice to know the outcome of the choices before we had to actually make the choice? Wouldn't it be nice for Portland to have known how Kevin Durant's career would have gone before making that choice or they could have made the right choice? Well, today we're going to get that kind of clarity. The book of Proverbs is about to give us a choice between two different paths, but it's not going to let us make that choice blindly. It's going to show us the outcome of the different paths. So it's giving us two competing paths. It's going to tell us what the outcome is so that we can make the right decision. 
So this morning we're continuing in our, our series, our summer series on the book of Proverbs. Uh, we're looking at Proverbs chapter 9 this morning. So if you'd turn there, uh, this would be a good time to do that. If you don't have a Bible, you can use the Bible found on the Purex, and it's found on page 633, right around the middle of your Bible. So we're going to see that there are two sides that are competing for our attention, and we're going to see that the, the choice we make between the two has huge consequences for our lives. So first we're going to see, uh, so we're going to see that the two different invitations with something of an interlude in between them here this morning. So let's see the, the first invitation first. This is in the opening verses, verses 1 through 6. It's the invitation of Lady Wisdom. Proverbs chapter 9, first six verses. Wisdom has built her house. She has set up its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her servants, and she calls from the highest point of the city. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, Come, eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways, and you will live. Walk in the way of insight. Now let's consider this invitation. First, notice, uh, let's notice a few things together here. Notice, first of all, that she's made preparations here. Wisdom has made preparations for this feast. So in the first two verses, you see that she's built her house. It's got seven pillars. In other words, this is a, just a number of completion. You don't have to look for something kind of tricky behind the, the seven pillars there. It's just saying that this is a spacious house and it's complete. It's finished. So her house is ready, and then she goes to prepare the food. She's, she's uh, sacrificed this meat. She's prepared the meat. She's mixed the wine. In other words, this is going to be a special meal. This is a, a feast. I mean, some of us eat meat every day. Some of us eat meat three times a day. But in this culture, meat is, is a special occasion kind of a food. So this is a, a feast. This is a, a banquet kind of a meal here. So the preparations have been made. The table is set. It's ready for guests. And she sends out her servants to invite the guests to come to her. Now note also uh, that she's calling from the highest point in the city. That's probably a significant statement because the building that was at the highest point in any given ancient Near Eastern city was the temple. So probably what the indication here is is that wisdom is being identified with God. So wisdom is God's wisdom. So this is a specifically religious type of a call here. Uh, wisdom is representing God and his wisdom. So who does wisdom invite to this uh, meal? She's inviting those who are simple and those who have no sense. Now, as we saw last week, those who are simple, uh, it's not uh, kind of a, a dig on them, but, but they're, they're a bit naive. They're, they're gullible. They, they've not yet made the choice to either follow the path of wisdom and, and receive instruction or to reject that instruction and become a fool. So those who are simple are kind of in between. They, they need to choose the path that's before them uh, now. So wisdom's invitation is to those it's the people that need instruction, and it's an invitation to actually gain wisdom. So they're invited to come and to eat of this great feast and to actually grow. And she's saying that they can become wise. They can leave their simplicity, not become fools, but become those who are wise, those who are insightful. Now, don't miss the outcome of that in verse 6 there. Let, leave your simple ways, and you will live. I mean, that's a crucial part of it. In other words, the, the outcome of, of accepting her invitation to this meal is life. And keep that in mind. This is an invitation to life. So basically, if you look at this uh, invitation that wisdom is giving, it's, it's an incredible invitation. If you really understand what she's saying here, if you catch all the pieces of it, of course you'd say, yes, this is about the best invitation you could have ever received. I remember back in, in elementary school, my sister, she must have been fourth grade or something like that. She, she entered this big uh, fire safety poster contest, and, and um, 
we have a slide here. It's actually not hers. Hers was cooler than the slide that we've got up here. Um, but she, she won on the local level, and then she won on the, the state level, and then she won on the national. She actually won this nationwide uh, poster contest, and it was a pretty cool thing. Uh, so we got a phone call one day inviting uh, my sister and my mom to go uh, celebrate in Orlando, Florida. They said they were going to fly them all the way from Alaska, all the way over to, to Florida. They were going to pay for their lodging, pay for them to stay in a hotel. They were going to give them tickets to, to Disney and, and, uh, and Universal Studios and all this stuff. They were going to pay for their meals and all this stuff. So basically, it's the best uh, kind of celebration, the best vacation that a fourth grader could imagine, right? The only thing that can make it any better is if you could maybe invite your little brother to join you. But aside from that, it was the best vacation a fourth grader could dream of. So did she accept the invitation? Well, of course she did. It's the best invitation ever. It's going to be the best celebration, the best uh, vacation she ever had. Of course she went. She had a great time, and I was very jealous. But that's what this is. Wisdom is inviting us to the best possible meal. This is the best invitation we could ever hope to get, a steak and wine dinner that leads to life and wisdom, leaving simplicity and going to life and wisdom and insight. And yet, incredibly, there are some people who are not going to accept this invitation. And we're going to see in a minute there's a, there's a competing invitation out here. But before we do that, there's a little moment of insight and kind of a, an interlude here to show what's going on between those who are wise and those who are foolish. The interlude is going to show us the crucial difference between them. So look with me at verses 7 through 9. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. Instruct the wise and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous and they will add to their learning. I mean, this is the stark contrast between those who are fools and those who are wise. A fool responds to advice and instruction by lashing out and attacking the person that's trying to help them. They're actually going to heap abuse on them. They're going to hate them for trying to instruct them. But a wise person is going to hear that instruction, hear the correction, and love the person who has corrected them because it's an opportunity to learn. So the crucial difference between fools and the wise is what they do with instruction. Those who are wise are teachable. They, they listen and they hear for the, they listen for the truth in it and they follow that advice. And they follow the instruction. While those who are fools say, you know what, I've got this. Don't, don't talk to me. I'm okay here. That's the difference. Now, this is one of those things that it sounds really clear on paper and probably everyone agrees, yes, you have to accept constructive criticism and, and that's how you grow and learn and become a better person, that kind of thing, become, become more wise. But somehow it's really hard for us to actually accept it in real life, or at least if you're like me, you, you hear a constructive criticism, even giving lovingly, and your first response is to sort of be embarrassed and kind of fight back against them, sort of attack them for saying something that, because what you really want to hear is, hey, you're perfect and you're doing a great job and we love you and you shouldn't change anything about you ever. But the truth is that every one of us has lots of areas of our life where we need instruction. We need to grow. We need to change because we're doing things that are not faithful to worshiping God. And we're doing things that hurt other people. So all of us need to uh, accept constructive criticism. So what we do with those who are trying to instruct us and give us wisdom is really, really important. You can either treat it like an attack and hold it against the other person or you can kind of get over yourself and humble yourself before God and look for the truth of what they're saying and seek to grow from it and get beyond it. So someone walks up to you and says, one of your friends, and says, you know, your sarcastic jokes are just getting to be a bit too much. You know, I know you're trying to be funny, and of course they are funny, but, but 
they're starting to get in the way of your relationships. They're starting to actually hurt people because some of the things you say, they're, just, they're a bit offensive. They're, they're a bit harmful. And so what do you do if someone says that to you? Well, probably you're embarrassed at first, and you're probably you're tempted to say, oh, that person's an idiot. They're not a true friend anyway. If they were a true friend, they wouldn't say something like that to me because it's really uncomfortable. But if we're going to be a wise person, we kind of take that constructive criticism. We hear the truth of it. We hear that this is motivated by love. And rather than scoring them and, and getting angry at them and cutting off that friendship, we see that this is a true friend. This is someone who actually cares about us. So it's hard for us to hear this, but we need to hear it if we're going to learn and to grow. Now, some of you are probably squirming just thinking about having a conversation uh, like that. I know it's not always an easy thing to do, but if we're to grow in wisdom together, we have to learn to be able to receive instruction and receive correction from others. In case you're not convinced that that's uh, a true thing, consider the outcome. Look at verses 11 and 12. For through wisdom your days will be many, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, your wisdom will reward you. If you are a mocker, you alone will suffer. So those who are teachable, those who take instruction, are rewarded with life. There's a reward to them. But, but those who refuse instruction, they only hurt themselves. There's no good in this. So the crucial difference between those who are wise and those who are foolish is teachability. But of course, we can pinpoint the difference even more precisely by tracking down the source of true instruction. And that's the hinge of the whole chapter here in verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. See, that's really the root difference between those who are fools and those who are wise. The wise fear God. They know who God is. They acknowledge that God is the true king. He is the one who created all things. He is the Holy One. He is righteous. He is glorious. They acknowledge him and seek to live under his rule. And that's what Jesus was talking about when he talked about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is where God reigns as king. And those who know God, who fear him, live under his rule in, in subjection to him and acknowledging that we need him for all things. Okay, so the wise fear God. That's really the difference here. When we truly understand who God really is, we'll fall on our knees in reverent awe before him. But the truth is that not everyone does fear God. There are lots of people that treat God pretty lightly, as if God doesn't exist or he doesn't really have a care for you or for your life or for what you do. They live as if he doesn't exist at all. And it's that failure to fear God and to know him that's at the heart of why anyone wouldn't accept this beautiful invitation that wisdom extends, that this banquet of life. See, there's a competing invitation here as well, and that's what we turn to now. So we see wisdom's invitation. We see the difference between those who are wise and those who are fools, and now we see this, this other invitation. It's an invitation to a meal from Lady Folly. So look at verses 13 to 17 with me. Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. Now, when we first look at this, we note the similarities between the invitation of folly and the invitation that we just heard from Lady Wisdom. The words at the outset are exactly the same. Let all who are simple come to my house. So it's, it's a virtually identical invitation with the same audience, those who are simple, those who lack sense. 
and she's calling from the same place in the city, again, from the highest point of the city. So there, there are similarities here that, that make it look like folly is, is adopting the same posture as wisdom. But it's these similarities that, that make the differences all the more obvious. So remember how wisdom had made preparation. She built her house. She, she had it all complete. She prepared the meat. She, she mixed the wine. She spread out her table. She sent out invitations. On the other hand, folly is just sitting lazily at her door and calling out to anyone who might be passing by. And note, too, the difference between the, the provisions. Wisdom is offering a steak and wine dinner, whereas folly just has bread and water. It's a, it's a stark difference between the two. So we can see, if we take a step back, that, that folly is really a cheap parody of wisdom. Folly is kind of mimicking what wisdom has said, but she doesn't have anything behind it. It's a cheap parody offering an alternative invitation, but the real uh, tragedy of folly's invitation is seen by the outcome. Verse 18. But little do they know that the dead are there that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. So this is the difference between the two. Wisdom is inviting the simple and those who lack sense to, to come and turn from their naivete to gain insight, and the outcome of that is life. But folly on the other side, she herself is simple and naive, and she has no knowledge, no understanding, and the outcome of accepting her invitation is death. So this is laid out pretty clear. The outcome of the one is life. The outcome of the other is death. This is the choice between life and death. So here's the question. Why would anyone choose folly over wisdom? I mean, we said at the outset that one of the reasons choices are so hard in life is because we don't know the outcome. But here, it's laid out for us clearly. Wisdom's invitation leads to life. Folly's invitation leads to death. So why would anyone still choose folly? Well, it's because of our sinful hearts, right? And we have a hard time believing that God's wisdom is really the best for life. And then folly plays on our sinfulness by trying to entice us to accept her invitation. Look at what she says uh, there in verse, uh, 16, or verse 17. Stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. So she's using the enticement of what is illicit to try to draw in our sinful tendencies. She doesn't have the meat and the wine that, that wisdom has. So she dresses up her meager offerings of bread and water with some false advertising. It's stolen water, so it's sweet. It's food eaten in secret, so it's delicious. There's a draw in our sinful hearts to breaking the rules. So water and bread by themselves, they're not exciting, of course, but, but if it's stolen water, and if it's supposed to be sweet, if it's food eaten in secret and it's supposed to be delicious, well, then, then that can kind of draw us toward folly's path. It's the same thing that leads to so many affairs in our culture, right? There's something exciting in our sinful hearts about a forbidden liaison. So if we stopped and considered carefully what we're doing and what its consequences are, it would stop us in our tracks. No one has an affair after making a pro and con list. They look at it carefully and consider all the consequences. But in the moment, we're drawn in. We don't think clearly, oh, it's stolen water. Oh, it's food eaten in secret. So there's a draw to the illicit here. See, so many of us choose folly's invitation over wisdom's invitation because we're tricked into separating consequences from actions. We don't think about the fact that folly's meal leads to death. That's the consequence of choosing her path. 
So what we need to do in order to avoid this foolish choice is to make decisions in moments of clarity, like now, to sustain us when folly tries to entice us. That's what this chapter in Proverbs is about. You are offered here a clear picture. There's wisdom on the one hand, fearing God, knowing him, and, and ex- inviting or accepting his invitation to wisdom and insight and life. The outcome of that is life with God forever. On the other hand, there's folly, and it, it might look enticing in the moment, but the outcome of that is death. So we've got it laid out clearly for us now. So the author of Proverbs is saying, listen, now in a moment of clarity, when you're not right there in the moment, take a step back and make your choice. Are you going to choose between wisdom or are you going to choose folly? It's presented here as a pretty obvious choice, right? It's life or it's death. And the reason it's presented as an obvious choice is because if what the Bible says about God is true, then it is an obvious choice. I mean, if the world and everything in it was really created by this holy, loving God and declared good, and if sin and darkness and death can really be traced back to human rebellion against God, starting back in the garden with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, and if God still loved his people so much that he determined to have a relationship with them and to redeem them, to reclaim this world, if he really sent his son Jesus to live, to die for our sins, and, to, and rose from death, defeat of the grave, if this is really true, if Jesus is really going to come back and restore all things so that those who belong to him will live forever in the presence of God and his protection and his provision, if that's really true, then this is an easy decision. Then of course you are going to accept wisdom's invitation to life because you see that, that God is incredible. He's glorious. He's gracious. There's nothing that compares to this God. If what the Bible says about God is true, then this is the most obvious choice in the world. The problem is that there are voices that are telling you that this isn't true, that God isn't like that. Or if he is like that, he doesn't really care about your whole life. He just wants a, a little piece of your life, maybe a, a little piece on Sunday mornings. Or you can kind of keep that to yourself and be a private thing, but it's not, it's not for your everyday existence. It's not for everyday life. Or at a bare minimum, it's trying to distract you from God and get you to focus on other things. Just like Lady Folly calling from her seat in in Proverbs 9 to anyone who will pass by, there are tons of voices and other forces in our culture that are trying to call us away from the path of wisdom, away from the path of life, to the path of folly. So let's let's just take an example uh, from a a cultural artifact of our time. Uh, What the pop culture uh, media deemed the song of the summer last year is called uh, blurred Lines, and I hope that a bunch of you don't know this song. I know that some of you will, um, but you, you've, if you listen to it uh, once or twice, you, you know that it starts off with a pretty inarticulate kind of a thing. They say, hey, 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 like three times or something like that. And you think, okay, you're not expecting much from this song. But tragically, the song takes a huge downward turn from there, and it's basically a song about a man pressuring a woman to have sex with him, even though she's with someone else. That's essentially the, the whole, what the whole song is about, punctuated by the line, I know you want it. I'm not going to quote anything else from it because it's, I looked up the lyrics last night and it's terrifying. But So what is this kind of a cultural phenomenon trying to do to you? What is the invitation that's being offered here? Well, basically, it's calling men and women to impulsive kind of sexual activity. And, and if you actually look at the lyrics, actually violent hookup kind of sex. That's what it's calling people to. And for men, it's a picture of sexuality where you're domineering and you're trying to pressure women. And for women, it's to accept that kind of domineering attitude and to give in to sort of uh, pressure to have sex with someone that you really don't know or that doesn't care about you at all. That's the, the offer that's being given in a, in a kind of song like this. And incredibly, that was like the most popular song of last summer. It's madly popular. 
And of course you might say that I'm just taking this too seriously. It's not meant to be uh, you know, looked at and examined and all this. But the thing is that cultural pieces like this tend to get in our heads. If, you're, if this is the song that's going through your head all summer long, that's going to subtly and yet powerfully affect your attitudes. And that then plays out in your actions. But this is the call of folly. It, it's all around us all the time. So from TV shows to uh, political pundits to ads, folly is calling to us and calling us away from the path of wisdom, away from the path of life, toward the path that leads to death. In all of this, if you take a step back and look at all of the cultural things like this, this is a consistent kind of thing. There are always people who are trying to get your attention, and most of them are not trying to get your attention for God. They're trying to pull you away for some other purpose. We're hearing voices that are offering competing visions of the world and competing value formation. So the church is designed to be a place where we uh, have spiritual formation. We're trying to draw you to, to know God and to worship God in all areas of life. But there's a competing kind of spiritual formation. It's a secular spiritual formation here. And if, if you have eyes to see it, you can see that this is actually happening all around us. And I don't say that as a kind of a, a, a paranoia-inducing sort of a thing or to make you scared or anything like that. I just say it because we have to have the clarity to step back from the cultural clutter around us and come back to the important and clear choice that's in front of us. The point is that our choice of teachers makes all the difference in the world. Who we listen to matters. That's what all this amounts to. Different cultural forces are attempting to shape our values, and most of those are pulling us away from true wisdom because most of them are trying to get you to forget about the true God and to live your life as if he's just not there. He doesn't really care about you. But at the same time, I don't think culture is something to fear. Really, it's just like Lady Folly here. What we need to do in the face of this isn't lock our doors and let nothing in and kind of isolate ourselves. Instead, we need to take a step back and see that what is being offered here in a song like Blurred Line or something else, what's being offered here is laughably inferior to what God offers us. I mean, God is offering us a feast. He's offering us steak and wine, a path that leads to life, going from simplicity, from foolishness, to actually wisdom and insight. He's giving us a picture of life that is incredible here. And his son's going to return to make all things right so that those who belong to him will live forever in God's presence. That's what's being offered to us here. A place where we get to live in the new heaven, new earth, where there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death. And if we focus on that, that's far more powerful than the competing voices that are around us. And that gives us the wisdom and the insight to, to see the emptiness of folly's claims on us, to see the emptiness behind these kind of cultural trends so that we can see the beauty of God's wisdom and accept that invitation. But if we're going to be able to see clearly, we have to make decisions now and we have to cultivate habits continually that allow us to choose wisely instead of foolishly. Let me give you just two good practical pieces of advice for how you can develop uh, uh, attitudes and, and develop habits that will keep you on the path toward wisdom. The first one should be pretty obvious, I, I hope. Immerse yourself in God's Word. If, if we know who God is as He's revealed in the Bible, then we'll be drawn to Him. As God's Spirit opens our eyes to the beauty and the glory of God, the incredible nature of His grace and what He has done for us in His Son, Jesus, when we, we become captivated by God, we become captivated by a vision of His glory so that any other vision of life that's offered us is seen for its inferiority. We're not drawn to that because we're drawn to the one true God. So, so the first piece of advice is just immerse yourself in God's Word. Find out who this God is. 
Keep reading, keep digging, find out the character and the action of God through all history. And then second, immerse yourself in Christian community. I think that's another really important part of this. We need to live side by side with people who know Jesus, who can guide us toward the path of wisdom, toward the path of life. Because we're going to be tempted at different points to, to veer off from that path toward death. And we need brothers and sisters who can correct us and remind us that, no, God really is who he says he is. And God's vision of life is so much superior to anything else that's offered there. And when we talk about these uh, other uh, competing visions of life that we have around us in culture, when we talk about that and explore it and step back, it gives us the clarity to see how empty these things are and see how how there's really no joy there. There's really no life there. That really is a a death-leading kind of a path. So immerse yourself in God's Word. Immerse yourself in Christian community. Have brothers and sisters walking alongside you. And here's the bottom line. Our choice of teachers makes all the difference in the world. We can either accept wisdom's invitation and go on the path of life, fearing God, or we can reject God and accept folly's invitation, but that path leads to death. That's how clear this choice is. It's between life and death this morning. Proverbs 9, that's how clear the choice is laid out. If you hear the invitation of wisdom and you hear the competing invitation of folly, that's the choice you're making, life and death. So don't be fooled by the false advertising. Don't be fooled by the follies trying to dress things up. God is offering you life. So you are offered a chance to live under God's good rule. So this morning, with clarity, I hope we can step back and, and hear the, the competing voices, all the clutter that's around, step back from that and look at what these are actually saying. Look at the vision of life that's actually being offered by these two different paths. And then come back to what God is saying in his word and choose life over death. May God, in his grace and his providence, lead us to choose life and to reject death time after time. If that's going to happen, we need God's wisdom. So please pray with me toward that end this morning. God, when it's put in the black and white terms of of something like Proverbs 9, it just seems so obvious. Do you choose life or do you choose death? No one would choose death. Everyone's going to choose life because it's, it's clearly the right choice. And it got in our everyday lives, it's not that simple. It, it seems more clouded. It seems uh, not quite as easy as that. I pray that in your grace you would send your spirit to work in our hearts to give us clarity on these issues. Help us to be so drawn to you and who you are that we can see right through these other things that are trying to get our attention. God, I pray that in your grace you would lead us, your people, in the path of life so that we may gain wisdom and we can live every day worshiping you and glorifying you with our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior. Amen.